to Kyle's internal monologue. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the Babylon 5 Season 3 episode, Dust to Dust. This is a wonderful episode. It's probably, I wouldn't say, uh, maybe top 10, I think. I, it, it, sometimes it's hard to rate, especially when you get to like the later seasons, Season 3 and 4, especially in Babylon 5. It's really hard to... Uh, like narrow down episodes that are like all time greats because they're almost consistently of great quality. And uh, Dust to Dust is just one I go back to a lot. And I'm sure if you have been listening to all my other talks on all the other ones, you probably know why. It's the Jakar and Londo scene. That scene is powerful. What it has to say about. Uh, social issues and the the commentary, but also what it says about the characters. This is massive. Uh, and as such, I'll probably spend a large majority of time talking about this. So I'll talk about other things first, so that I don't bore you with my gushing about Londo and Jakar, you know, my favorite characters and all that. Uh, Dust to Dust sees uh, Bester return. Alfred Bester. Um, it's always great to see him. Walter Koenig plays a wonderful villain, as I've mentioned every time Bester has shown up. Uh, but here he's uh, he's not quite um, at his most likable yet, even though saying he's likable is uh, kind of horrible to say because, you know, Bester is this horrible, despicable human being that does horrible, horrible things. And you don't agree with him at all, so it's kind of hard to say, oh, I like him. No, you don't. You you love to hate him. He's one of those kind of characters. He is so schmarmy in this episode. Because, for once, he has a situation that he is trying to deal with, and it's a situation that Babylon 5 needs to deal with, but it isn't any kind of like covert operation or anything. It's just, okay, this needs to be solved. And he's holding it over their heads the entire time because of all the shit that has gone down. The Babylon 5 crew is, of course, not receptive to him coming over and is actively treating him as hostile. Uh, I love that moment when he, he walks in and he's surprised to see the Membari telepass, which was a stroke of genius. It puts them on an equal playing field because they don't have to abide by Psycorp laws, and therefore he now can no longer violate those laws he quote-unquote quote you know, serves to uphold. And then they force him to take the drug, the sleeper drug, uh, and there's a lot of interesting interplay between him and every other member of the Babylon 5 crew. Him and Sheridan, uh, you know, butting heads over how to deal with the situation. Garibaldi and Bester, because they are almost two sides of the same coin, not quite, but almost. You have one person who uh, is very much the, uh, uh, I understand why you break the law, but I'm here to um, enforce the law, and I'm here to understand, I'm here to spout justice, I am the security officer, and I've done horrible things in my life, but I'm trying to make amends for that. Um, and someone who is not apathetic to problems, and then you have someone who is apathetic to problems and who is actively abusing his position of power. We see this very demonstra uh, demonstrated very well in the interrogation scene, where Bester uses the fear of the Psychor emblem and the fear of Psychops themselves, the mythology around them, to uh, to spark the guy into telling the truth. He says, "You know, I couldn't sense him lying. Yes, but I, the, the you know, uh, one of the things that a liar fears most is being found out. So I just played into his own paranoia." 
Uh, and he's like, it's the it's the pluses of this badge. And, then, and that's a commentary on privilege and power that comes from positions of power. Um, police brutality is within of its own thing, you know, something massive and important and needs to be dealt with. It's a problem that's throughout most of human history and throughout most of the world currently today. Um, and, you know, j even not just police, but other systems of power, the military, etc. There's always the symbol of fear and power. It gives you privilege that you wouldn't normally otherwise have. And sometimes that privilege is necessary, but it sometimes is a horrible thing as well. Uh, Bester points this out. When Garibaldi calls Bester out on the fact that he abused his privilege, his power that the Psychor gives him to bully the guy into giving an answer, his, his response, you know, is that it's no different than what your badge does to you, Mr. Garibaldi. Um, the entire sense coming from that is that no matter where you are, as long as you wear something that is symbolic of an idea, a symbol, uh, you, much, much like the security officers or, or, you know, the protect and serve, that's going to mean something to someone. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to mean the same thing to everyone. To some people, the police are scary and frightful and your enemy. To other people, they are their protectors. There's this uh, sort of cultural thing where it depends how you grew up. It's nature versus nurture almost. Um, and it's just interesting to examine uh, positions of power and the inherent symbology of them and the and, and sort of the the abuse of power that can come from that. Uh, I mean, we have, in the speaking of the comparing contrasting, Garibaldi never abuses his power as, as the head of security. But Bester more than willingly flaunts his power and regularly abuses it in order to get what he wants. And plus their interplay is just great of, uh, 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 we, 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 you know, I would hit you if you were a pinata. Oh, so you see me as a pinata, eh? You know, uh, something uh, bright and colorful and full of candy for young children. Why, thank you, Mr. Garibaldi. Um, it's just a wonderful interplay. Um, and, and then there is the entire Bester and, uh, and Ivanova situation. Now... Near the beginning of this episode, when Ivanova finds out that Bester is coming to the station, she empties the CNC and she readies the weapons to fire, and then Sheridan comes in and stops her. That scene, I don't think, plays as much as it's supposed to. It doesn't play right to me. The reason I say this is this should be an impactful scene. This should be one of those scenes you remember. The Psychor have taken everything from Ivanova, and if you pay attention to what she says afterwards, when Sheridan confronts her, she says "There's, uh, they are always too strong. There is too many of them and not enough of us. The idea there is she is so pessimistic. I've talked about this before. Ivanova inherently is, pessimis is pessimism personified, and she actively makes jokes about it, uh, just how pessimistic she views the world. She has lost everything. Um, she, her father you know, died, her brother died, her mother died, and her mother in particular was taken from her by the Psychor. And her entire being, her life has been threatened by the Psychor. And now the woman she loved was taken by the Psychor and effectively murdered. 
uh, the death of personality, something I brought up previously, that the death of personality in and of itself can almost be constituted as murder. That That's what they've done. They, that's what they did to Talia. And based on the hints that Bester gives us, they perhaps, uh, you know, experimented on her to find out what the, the, the gift that Ironheart gave, him, uh, gave her, meaning that she may, in fact, be dead now. Not only personality-wise, but physically as well. Ivanova has lost everything to these people. They represent the enemy. And they deserve what they get. So she wants to fire upon them. But it's not played that great, I don't think. The, the scene's too short. Um, it's, uh, the, uh, sadly, Conde Christensen, you know, who, who should be selling this situation, I don't think plays it as well. And it just doesn't hit the emotional gut punch I think it should. Um... I'm not sure if it's an acting problem, a writing problem, a directing problem. It's probably far outside my area of expertise. I am not a professional writer by any means, and I am not, uh, and I'm just a 22-year-old loudmouth who loves fiction. I, I I don't know the realities of TV production, uh, so you know that situation I can't really speak to. But it just doesn't hit the same way I think it should because this scene should mean everything to the audience and to Ivanova, and it just doesn't land. However, the interplay between Ivanova and Bester, great stuff. I love how because not only did they take her mother, but now they've taken Talia. She has no remorse anymore. Every situation in which violence can be done to Bester, she more than willingly agrees to it. There isn't. She always hated the Psychorn, but now she has no tolerance for them. She's done. And I just like that, you know. And it, it, it speaks to that that mentality that she has, you know. There's too many of them, and, you know, uh, and not enough of us. They're always too strong. Um, and something else she said once was, uh, "There's always more of them than there are of us." You know, effectively a reworded of what I you know, what what she what I was quoting. She said that speaks volumes about Ivanova as a person and how she sees the world. And she's very hands on with things. She has to be in control, and the Psychor represent a thing that will get rid of that control and that will take everything from her. Um. Now, uh, the Veer side of the plot. Uh, interesting stuff. Once again, something I talked about last week, um, the entire semantics that politicians, I, I, politics and politicians operate on the idea of what it mean, it don't mean what you say. So basically you rewrite everything to fit your frame of reference, but make it more palatable to other people. Uh, so it's, it's no longer... A, I'll, I'll take an example. Actually, I'll pull from real life. Um, so uh, many years ago, the U.S. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, declared that gay marriage was legal. And woohoo, that's great. That's wonderful. You know, I'm very much pro-gay rights. But I live in a state that's immediate reaction was religious freedom. They wanted to repeal that based on religious ideals. And so, therefore, they they basically rewrote the dictionary. So instead of being seen as bigoted for um, 
being against gay rights. They were just like, oh, well, I'm we're, we're, we're all happy for people to be happy, but to ensure that, we're going to ensure that these people can be happy too. It's, it's rewriting the dictionary. It's exactly what was mentioned last episode. And we see that where Londo and Veer are sitting down and Londo's reading Veer's report about his adventures on Mimbar. And, he, you know, uh, he talks about the, you know, the ancient architecture that goes about thousands of years. And, and, and Londo says, no, 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 you don't, you don't say that. You, you, you say it's thousand-year-old architecture is old, it's rotting, and is likely to fall apart. It's a demonstrative of a stagnant and unchanging culture. Uh, you don't say there are deeply spiritual people. You say they're uh, decadent and inward-thinking. You know, it's not... It, it, it's not about telling the truth. It's about telling what you perceive in a more palatable way. Make it matter and resonate to the audience that you are speaking to. Um, that's what politics is. It's, it's, it's a lying game. It's why I don't trust politicians. It's why I don't like politics in general. It's simply because you can't trust anything they say. They are literally changing the narrative to fit their needs... And talking and appealing to the crowd they're currently talking to. one The same politician can say one thing to one group of people. Um, let's, let's give an example of just out of wackadoodle. Let's not use real life events. Let's just say um, I, they, they, they'd say, I like iPhones uh, to one group of people. And that very same politician, two days later... We'll talk to another group of people and say, I don't like iPhones. Because it's all about appealing to the audience you're talking to. It's not real. It's fake. It's false. It's what politics are in a nutshell. And I one thing I like about the Veer uh, situation in particular is how he... Constantly talking to Delin and Lanier... And about how he thinks Londo should visit Mimbar, how much it may help him. And Delin and Lanier are both um, not sure of Londo because of his because of his recent actions. And Veer is the only one that truly sees Londo for who he truly is. Uh, he sees the man that is frightened uh, and foolish all at the same time. He even brings that up when, when, when Delenn is, you know, mediating the, the meetings between the Centauri and the Drazi, and the, uh, the Londo leaves, and the Drazi ambassadors leave, and it's just Veer, and, and uh, the, the, someone makes mention of, uh, they're both, they're both, uh, one of them is frightened, the other is foolish, and Veer makes a comment and says, it's hard to tell which is which. Uh, and, it shows the wisdom of Veer to be able to see how Londo is and not see the mask he is putting on. He gets to see the real Londo. Speaking of seeing the real Londo, we come to the Londo and Jakar bit. This is amazing. It's just a fantastic work by JMS. This is just... It's hard to describe the, the feelings I get from watching this scene... Uh, Andres Katsoulas in particular acts his heart out. It's just wonderful. You you feel the anguish Dakar is feeling. So the dust, 
which we later find out in the episode it was manufactured by the Psycor, by the way, to in hopes of producing more telepaths. And that's also just a neat little world-building thing, is that I like how we've heard about dust, we've actively seen dust, but we've never known what it did, and now it becomes a situation where we find out. And I like that. Uh, I just like that it's always been there, but it's kind of maintained this air of mystery. I like that. Um, and, and also that all the characters already knew what it was. There was no need to turn to the audience and explain what it did. All the characters already knew about it, and Franklin in particular, before it's even explained to the audience, was immediately, check this guy for dust. I like that. Just clever world building, not treating your audience like an idiot. Um, but back to the Londo Jakar thing. Jakar uh, is desperate. I've mentioned this before. And something he's been interested in ever since he was first introduced in the gathering was bringing telepaths back to the Narn. And as we know, the Narn telepaths were wiped out many, many years ago. And the situation there is that um, the dust plays on the genetic uh, potential for telepathy. Who knows if the Narns can even use it. And so he tests it out on himself, and his first immediate reaction is to go for Londo. Uh, and, you know, he, he's he, the drug is making him delirious, and when he gets to Londo and he's angry, he's, he's frustrated, and this is the one thing that gives him power over Londo. And we get to see from inside Londo's head how Jakar... Bully, effectively bullies Londo into admission of he's become the bully and he needs to turn away from this, which is the entire idea that Jaquan puts in his head that I'll get to in a moment. But the way the way he pulls the information from Londo, he mocks Londo, he beats Londo. He, he you know, we find out that Londo got his job, you know, because it was a joke. No one wanted it, and Jakar actively mocks him. He's like, the great and powerful Lando Malari got his job because no one else was stupid enough to take it. And as he goes further and further along his mind, he finds out that all his suffering, all his pain, is because Lando made one simple mistake. And he gained, he, goes, he just becomes so angry, and Andreas Costelis just acts his damn heart out it's amazing you feel the you feel the anguish and the anger that Jakar feels as he's like I will rip this information neuron by neuron if I have to I want all of it Malari I want all of it and we see just this chaotic montage of everything Londo has done and all the mistakes he has made and all the cause all the pain he has caused Jakar and the Narns as a whole and that breaks Jakar. He's crying. He's upset. And that's when he hears his father's voice. Finally, when he realizes that all this came about because of mistakes made and words uttered without thought, he is now willing to listen. And maybe, just maybe, the wheel can break and he hears his father's voice of avenge me you know just carry on my legacy remember my name 
and then Jaquan appears and you know the 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 Centauri are dying people and so are we and and and, and Jaquan insists but the Centauri started it and Jaquan goes it doesn't matter who started it doesn't matter you know we are obsessed with each other's death until death is all that remains and death is all we deserve and Jaquan basically breaks down the cycles of violence to Jakar and explains that if you continue down this path you're going to solve nothing all you are is going to perpetuate the same cycle you have been stuck in for hundreds and hundreds of years once one strikes you back the other strikes back again over and over and over again the bullies become the bully and so on it continues forever onwards because you choose for it to be that way no change is had no real change and Jaquan pleads with him that you must turn away from this violence and seek a new path if we are all to be saved. You know, a little suffering now, you know, for peace later, basically. And, and as Jakar listens and begins to understand Jaquan's message, because at first he is protesting, you know, the Centauri started it, but as he learns and he understands, he asks, you know, where have you been? And, and that's when we get the big reveal. Jaquan says, I have always been here. And then the reveal is that Jaquan was Kosh. So this is an interesting thing. You can read it in multiple ways. Uh, obviously, I've talked about the Vorlons and the relativeness to actively make all religious figures, angels, demons, what have you, uh, to be them, to influence people. Uh, after all, that's what they care about, is they care about obedience overall. And you can certainly read this as Kosh acting on the behest of the Vorlons to get Jakar against the shadows to manipulate him. But I read it a different way. Kosh has actively demonstrated several times throughout many, many episodes that he is more than willing to act and basically break the Vorlon way uh, and to help when necessary. Uh, his statement of I have always been here basically means I have always been here for to, to teach you this lesson, but you refuse to listen, you know. Uh, that old sentiment God gave you, uh, you know, two ears and one mouth, um, basically is what he's saying. And I think it's Kosh stepping in and saying, enough. Because if you remember, all the way back in Midnight on the Firing Line, Kosh himself said, you know, they are a dying people. We should let them pass. And Sinclair asks, who, the Narn of the Centauri? Kosh doesn't answer. And now we see him say that again, except not saying they should let them pass. You know, him as Jaquan says, we are a dying people, and so are the Centauri. Obsessed with each other's death until death is all that remains, and death is all we deserve. Kosh is actively 
taking the next step in his own philosophy and going, no, 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 no. Let's stop these stupid mind games of obedience and let's actively make a change for the better. If we are the shepherds, let us actually be shepherds instead of passive observers. And we see that Jakar has become mellower. We see in his trial scene, he doesn't fight back. He pleads guilty and he's more than willingly sentenced to prison and he accepts his fate. He's calmer. He's different now. He's less of the passionate warrior and more of the wise monk. A priest, if you will. And he's got this sense of serenity about him. It's very unique and very different from what we have seen from Jakar. And it's just very important about that. And, and, and we even see that Londo is changed by the experience as well. When he talks to Veer... He uses his own personal experience, you know, because he, he, he lets Veer go back to Mimbar and decides not to change what Veer was doing. And he says, don't let them make you the, uh, don't let them make your position a joke. Don't let it be a joke to them. Because both Lanto and Trakar, this scene, this moment in time means everything to their development. They're two very similar people and yet different people at the same time. And at this one moment in time, they have both irregularly changed. And going forward, Lanjo and Kachikar are going to evolve in very different ways. And I look forward to talking about that. But this moment, the Jaquan, Jakar, and Londo bit, is some fantastic writing, fantastic acting, just all around amazing. That's all I have to say on this episode. Once again, Dust, uh, Dust, for, uh, Dust to Dust is one of my favorites. I'm not sure where I would rank it, um, but I, I'm pretty sure I put it on my uh, t uh, top five for Battle on Five Season 3. I'd have to double check, but uh, anyway, it was a really good episode, and I just love gushing about it. Uh, but uh, I shall see you next time. In the meantime, bye.